thank you for coming this morning. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and we'll pick up in 2 Samuel here. Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered together uh, just to worship you, uh, to take time out of our busy week, and uh, stop and read a book that was written a couple thousand years ago, probably is uh, nonsensical to a lot of people, and yet for us, this uh, is the living, breathing word of God. Peter said, these are the words of eternal life. Uh, I pray that we would just grow in our appreciation of this word this morning. Lord, that you would help us to become better students of this book. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so I wanted to begin this morning with just a brief overview of 2 Samuel up to this point, just to kind of bring us up to speed. I know we've been uh, through seven chapters now, so just to get a very general overview of the book. In the first two chapters, uh, David receives news that Saul is dead. And uh, we might think that he would be excited about that fact, but he actually mourns, he laments Saul, and he is made of just, he's made king of just Judah for a period of seven years. And in chapters three to five, we're told that during that time, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, reigns in Israel. So you have these two kings kind of simultaneously reigning. Uh, David in the south and Judah, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, reigning in the north. And it's over the course of these first five chapters now that there is one attribute of David that should stick out to us in particular, and that is his unwavering trust in God's plan and in God's timing. If you remember in chapter four, these two guys take it upon themselves to kill Ishbosheth, and they sneak into his house, cut his head off bring his head to David and kind of present it to him like it's a trophy. And they say, hey, David, we did you a great favor here. And they almost stand there with their hand out like, you going to pay us uh, or reward us for what we've done? And David just responds and calls them wicked men. He says, don't you know what I did to the guy in chapter one that told me you killed Saul? You guys can't kill Ishbosheth here and think that I'm going to reward you. In fact, he has them put to death. David's response is, I'm not dependent on you guys to intervene here. I've trusted on God to deliver me from prior adversity, from the lion and the bear when I was a shepherd to D Goliath. Through my whole life, God will deliver me from adversity at this point in my life as well. And, and I know that's kind of strange because even Shane and I were talking about Samuel earlier this week, and we were just saying, like, if we were David and our enemy was deposed of, we would be like, yes. Like, thank you, my turn. Finally, I get to reign. I've been waiting 15 years since the time Samuel anointed me till now. And David just responds totally differently. He's very humble. He has this unwavering trust in God's plan. And so I think we would do well to emulate that, to say, Lord, my circumstances are not going the way that I would have drawn them up, but I trust you. You're sovereign. You're in control. I will wait on your timing. Uh, chapter 6 David brings the ark to Jerusalem, and we used this lesson to answer a couple of questions that are pretty, um, I don't know, complex in the scripture. So let me remind you of what we asked. Uh, we said, first of all, remember when David uh, is transporting the ark, and it starts to topple, and Uzzah sticks out his hand to steady it? We answered the question, why did Uzzah die? Does anyone remember? Correctly. And, and do you remember, Mike, how it was that he should have been transporting the ark? Yes. 
Yes. Exactly. Like Mike said, God had clear written instructions in the scriptures. You, when you move the ark, carry it by poles. God even warns them in numbers, if you touch these holy things, you'll die. He even takes that a step further and says, if you look at these holy things, you will die. So Uzzah and David should have known, do not transport this on an ox cart. This should be carried by Levites. Exactly right. And then as the chapter progresses, uh, we were introduced to that story of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem and he's dancing and some people speculate that maybe he was even naked. Uh, so, so just a quick response to those questions. Was David worshiping God naked? We said absolutely not. Uh, Chronicles elaborates for us that he's wearing an ephod and a linen robe. This was not some immoral form of worship that was taking place here, contrary to some things that you might hear in popular Christianity. And secondly, is it appropriate to dance uh, as an act of worship towards God? We explored that question just a little bit. And the, the advice or counsel that I think we can reasonably come to is that our worship should not be devoid of emotion. So if you come here Sunday mornings and you look up at the screen, and you see the lyrics and all you do is just kind of recite them with no real joy taking place in your heart, with no expression of, wow, God is awesome, then you're missing something. D David wasn't dancing to like, get attention for himself. In fact, he tells his wife, Michael, who rebukes him, he says, I wasn't dancing for you. This was for the Lord and him alone. And, and in fact, if you think I'm trying to impress you, there are going to be times that I do things in the act of doing things for the Lord that are going to be even more embarrassing. And I think we would just do well to consider, you know what? When we come Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, our worship should be full of emotion. And the lyrics that we sing on a screen should move our hearts, sometimes it tears even, as we consider what it is that God has done for us. And finally, chapter 7, we explored the Davidic covenant, and I'll throw this... Uh, whole chart on the screen for you that we looked at last week. Here is uh, the five major covenants in the Old Testament, beginning with Adam, working throughout David. This kind of follows a very redemptive thread. You can see at the bottom there is how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these covenants, that he would bruise the head of Satan, that he is this future blessing, that only Jesus can keep the law. And finally, last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we considered that Jesus is the eternal king spoken about or promised to to David. But in addition to the promise made to David last week of there being an eternal kingdom, you can see that there are two additional promises that God made to David. One, that he would have a great name, and two, that his kingdom would have peace or rest from their enemies. And, and it is the second promise that we are going to see really come to fulfillment here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8 with me, if you will. Second Samuel 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter in one sitting. And just a, I'll say a heads up, I'm going to ask you guys for maybe some comments or feedback or first response on this chapter at the end of it. So let's read. I'll read 2 Samuel 8 in its entirety, and you be thinking, hey, what can we learn from this? Beginning in verse 1, 
After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betta and Barothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toi, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people, Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. So let me ask you, what is your thoughts after reading this chapter? Do you just read chapter 8 here, and your spirit is nourished, and you are refreshed, and you think, wow. What a blessing. <laughs> Imagine 2 Samuel chapter 8 is scheduled in your chronological reading for tomorrow morning. What do you do with this? Do you, do you just plow through and say, man, I hope chapter 9 is better? Because this just seems like a whole lot of details, numbers, um, people that we've never heard their names of, much less hardly pronounce them. Oh, and any ideas of how we might approach studying a passage of scripture like this that on the surface seems to be pretty dry, if I can be honest? Much. Very good observation, Mike. Interesting. Okay. Any other thoughts from this chapter? I, I'm trying to answer the question, how should we approach obscure 
passages of scripture. I kind of set you guys up to fail here from my perspective, to be honest, because when I read chapter eight in preparation for studying this, I was like, yikes, <laughs> I have to teach this? Uh, what, what are we gonna learn uh, about God from this passage of scripture? It, it seems very dry, very obscure. And, and so what I hope to do this morning is to just help you guys as you come across passages of scripture like this in your own daily reading, to just consider maybe some tricks, some pointers as to how we would dissect a passage of scripture like this. So first and foremost, Hutch drew our attention to the first one. Look for key or repeated phrases. For instance, look at verse six of chapter eight. The very last sentence of chapter 6 says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Look again at the end of verse 14. We see the same sentence. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The author here is taking great care to point out to us that David is not just some military genius. He's not just some dude that has killed a lion and a bear and a giant and is awesome. What are we supposed to learn about David's exploits here? The Lord is with him. And I read one commentator who said that normally what is described for us here in chapter 8 would have taken pages and pages and pages of literature to describe. I mean, think about it. Any other king, any other ruler, if they're in the prime of their life, if they are defeating their enemies, they're going to write about it. And they're going to say, let me give you all the details describing to you how awesome I am as a king, as a general. And yet what we have here in chapter 8 is just a couple of sentences dedicated to each of David's uh, conquests here. It's very, very minimal, very bare bones. And yet what we do have described for us is that this is not David's heroics alone. The Lord is with him. And when we consider from the previous uh, chapter, chapter 7, that God made a promise that he was going to give him peace, then when we come to chapter 8, and we see that the Lord is with David, we see this as a fulfillment almost immediately of the promise that God had made to him. Do you see that? God says, I'm going to give you peace from your enemies. And then we're reading, and the Lord is with David, the Lord's with David. God's fulfilling this promise. This becomes even more clear to us as we consider um, the exact nations that David conquers or subdues. So look at verse 12. There's a list of nations in verse 12 that I imagine we would probably just blow right through in our daily Bible reading plan and not give any thought to these nations. We read Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and then this guy named Hadad-Ezar, who is the king of Zobah. And if you're anything like me, that means next to nothing. Right? It'd be like if I listed off Lapeer, Grand Blank, Davison, Burton, Flushing, Flint. You're like, that means nothing to me. I've maybe heard one of those names before. It's not until you look at a map that you're like, oh, those are the cities around the area that I grew up in in Michigan. Well, when we look up at a map at the list of these nations, we see something really interesting. Might be hard to read on the screen there but working clockwise from the top, you see the Aramaeans, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Amalek, Philistia, 
what is the significance of all the nations that are listed here in verse 12? What do you notice? Say that again, Lynn. Oh, yep. And then the blue is the nation of Israel. So they are Israel's immediate neighbors. These aren't just random people that live on the continent somewhere. When these nations are listed, God is saying, hey, I'm giving you peace from your immediate neighbors. In an age in which they didn't have planes or long-range missiles, your enemies were the people that were closest to you. And so we see all of these names. The one that's not pictured is Zoba. It's actually a little bit further north than the Aramaeans there. We're just seeing God's word be fulfilled. He told David, yeah, there is a king whose reign is going to be eternal coming from you. But a secondary promise is you're going to have peace from your enemies. And we're just seeing these enemies being defeated one after another after another. God is keeping his promises. He's faithful. Uh, I, I find this to be pretty cool that a sentence in scripture that I'm sure many of us just blow right through, don't give any thought to, when just doing something as simple as looking at a map brings it to life. And we see, wow, God's at work. He, he is helping David to defeat his immediate enemies. There's another key phrase here in chapter 8 that I think is significant that makes a connection to the Davidic covenant. That's verse 13, where we read, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Remember one of the promises of the Davidic covenant? Rest from your enemies an eternal king coming from you, David, but also that your name would be great, like the great ones of the earth. Again, just a simple sentence. We're seeing the events of chapter 7 being fulfilled immediately one chapter later. David's name is becoming renowned. He's becoming like one of the great ones of the earth. And with that, we come to the second study technique in considering obscure passages of scripture. And that is to just consider the greater context, where this might fall with the chapters around it. So I know we've done a little bit of this already in looking at the key phrases. The fact that the Lord is with David and that he's giving him a great name doesn't really make sense unless we have chapter seven right before it. So there is some overlap admittedly, but I think that there is something particularly from chapter seven that helps us understand a little bit more about chapter eight and their relationship to each other. So I want you guys to think back with me now. Obviously chapter seven is the Davidic covenant. We've been beating that over the head this morning. We understand that, but what was the catalyst or the occasion for God to make this covenant or this promise to David? Does anyone remember? What sparked God making this promise to him? Mike? Exactly, do you guys remember that? David is sitting in his palace and it's almost like we can envision him like looking out the window and he's like, oh, here I am living in a palace in luxury, comfort, stability, and God's house is a tent. The Ark of the Covenant lives in a tent. He said, that's not right. There's a real disparity here. And so he takes it upon himself. God, I want to build you a house. Anyone remember what God's response was to David? from last week, when David expressed this desire to build him a house, does God say, yeah, go for it? Watch. He does say that, yeah. 
<laughs> yes, you're exactly right. And in saying that, uh, Chronicles elaborates that God is actually telling him no here. He says, David, thank you. You are doing something that is honorable, but you can't build me a house. And why? Yeah. He had too much blood on his hands. Does chapter 8 not give us a little bit better of a picture of what that might be? Right? In the time of Saul, David, it was already sung of him that Saul had killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And the events of chapter 8 only add to that total. I mean, there are some really disturbing, horrifying realities of war that take place here in chapter 8. Just look at verse 2, for instance. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. That, that is brutal. In verse 4, you're going to read about how David cripples horses. Uh, it says that he hamstrings them. Uh, as, as you just casually let your eyes scan down this chapter, you will see tens of thousands of people that die at the hand of David. And so when we remember God's prohibition against David and saying, you know what, David, you can't build me a house because you're a man of war. You've shed much human blood. It's a little bit easier for us to understand God's reasoning here, isn't it? When we see these things. And no, we don't know the exact reason. I think we would love for a little bit more clarity. Like why, you know, God did sanction these things. So why is he then turning around and telling David that he's killed too many people? The scriptures don't elaborate on that. I wish it did, to be honest. But we're just seeing David truly is a man of war. There is a lot of human blood on his hands. How about this? There's one final study tip, and that is to compare the cross-references. Now, I know this can be a little bit tedious if your Bible has cross-references and you're looking like I am in the margins and you're seeing like 50-plus verses that we would need to look up. That is intimidating. Like, I didn't even do that in preparation for this lesson. But cross-references are really, really, really rich, particularly if we see the word cited next to it. Just for example, turn back one chapter to 7, verse 14. If your Bible has cross-references, you should see this. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, find the cross-reference. You'll see that this verse is cited where? Does anyone see? Um, there might be an allusion to it in Psalms, but my Bible says cited and has one passage of Scripture immediately after it. Anyone else see that? Tim? Hebrews 1. Yeah, so if you were to turn to Hebrews 1, you would see this verse quoted verbatim, and that is a direct connection to Jesus. So please, just scan your Bible briefly and look at where something might be cited and say, whoa, the interconnectedness of the Old and New Testament is apparent here. However, in chapter 8, there is no citations. There is no direct quoting of this chapter. However, there is something else interesting. It requires us to remember that much like the Gospels 
are retellings of the same stories. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all kind of say the same thing with a different angle, sometimes adding more details. So too does 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. They are retellings of the same story, sometimes with more details. So look at chapter 8, verse 1, if you have cross-references. My Bible says, for verses 1 to 18, see 1 Chronicles 18, 1 to 17. Let's turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 18 to see the retelling of this story. 1 Chronicles 18. I hope this isn't information overload. I know we're doing a lot here, maybe more than you've done in your own Bible reading. But I trust that the richness of what we're doing here will help a chapter as obscure as 2 Samuel 8 come to life. So in 1 Chronicles 18, just take 30 seconds, a minute, and scan it briefly and see if there are any extra details in this passage of Scripture that 2 Samuel 8 did not include for us. Go ahead and just take a minute or two, briefly read it, and see if there's anything extra that might be included in this chapter. All right, I realize that these are very, very, very similar. Probably a lot of deja vu happening here, like I just read about this story. But was there any line, any verse that struck you as additional, perhaps a unique detail? Yes, Hutch. Okay, uh, what verse are you looking at? Yep, okay. Any other additional details? Yeah, tell me. Look at verse 8. That's exactly what I was hoping we would see. Thank you, Grace. That was awesome. I know it was a lot to compare there, but verse 8 tells us what David is doing with the spoils of war. It seems a little innocent at first, and from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadad Izar, David took a large amount of bronze. With it, 
Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. Uh, the end of verse 10 and 11 tell us that David uh, sent all sorts of articles of gold, silver, bronze that he dedicated to the Lord. Second Samuel does say that. But a couple of chapters later in First Chronicles, I'll put it on the screen for you, we see just how much David is able to gather. Oh, I don't think I put it on the screen. All right, turn in your Bibles then to First Chronicles 22, just a couple of chapters later. First Chronicles 22, verse 14. This is David speaking here. And he says, With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add. And I think it's pretty cool that in 2 Samuel, we're told about David defeating all of his enemies and capturing all this spoil. First Chronicles tells us that this spoil that David used or gathered was used in the construction of the temple. And so though God told David, no, I don't want you building the temple, he didn't give any prohibitions about David beginning to collect resources for the temple. And so you have like this twofold, uh, I don't know, circumstance that is going on where, yes, David is defeating his enemies. The nation of Israel is experiencing peace. But simultaneously, in the defeat of these enemies, God is providing gold and silver and bronze that Solomon is going to use to build that temple. I think it's pretty awesome. And all of that, just from looking at 2 Samuel chapter 8 and the cross-references, very, very, very quickly... Turn to Psalm 60. I know we're turning in more than we usually do. This is probably more information than we're accustomed to. Psalm 60 is identified in the cross-references of 2 Samuel 8 as being a psalm that David wrote during this time. You can actually see in the inscription there that it is a miktum of David for instructions when he strove with Aram Nahirim and with Aram Zobah and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Many, many, many people think, well, commentators, excuse me, think that this psalm was written during the events of chapter 8. Now, the inscriptions details do not correspond with what we read in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel says that David struck down the Edomites and that there were 18,000 of them. To complicate matters further, Chronicles states that it was actually Abishai that killed the Edomites, 18,000 of them. So we're like, what in the world is going on? We're getting conflicting accounts here. Uh, people have offered that since all three of these men were military generals, it's not lying to say that David, Edom, and Abishai were involved in this uh, conquest of the nation of Edom. So it's not... We, we shouldn't be worried about the inerrancy of scripture here, that 
Joab is credited with uh, the victory. And then as regarding the 12,000 versus 18,000 discrepancy, uh, perhaps it is just a numerical error that sometimes happens when scribes were transmitting the scripture. Uh, perhaps this is just reflecting the sequence of the battle. Uh, a battle doesn't take place in one day. 18,000 people probably were not killed in one day. So David writes this psalm perhaps midway through when only 12,000 people have been killed up to that point. Again, maybe more details than you care about, but if you're reading and seeing that the details don't quite match up, there's just a brief explanation for you. It seems like as we're reading through this psalm, sometimes we think David is just sitting in a nice meadow with a harp, and people are fanning him with palm branches, and he just has all this time to just be super poetic and write these beautiful psalms. And we forget, uh, no, David's in the middle of a battle here, right, with Edom, they're enemies, and he writes a psalm. He talks to God. No, notice what he says in verse 1. seems like maybe they've just lost one of these battles. He says, oh God, you've rejected us. Broken our defenses. You've been angry. Oh, restore us. In verses 6 to 8, uh, we're reminded that God has uh, promised to make these perennial, perennial enemies of Israel uh, subject to the nation of Israel. And then verses 10 to 12, David makes this plea to God, and he says, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And I only draw our attention to that this morning just to say, listen, even as the events of 2 Samuel 8 are going on, David is writing psalms. It's not just the author of 2 Samuel who admits that uh, God is helping David. David even here cries out to God in verse 12, It's you, Lord, who's going to tread down our foes. This is not any work of my own doing. I am dependent on you. So I realize, again, there's a lot going on here. I appreciate you keeping up with me as we've just examined how do we, what do we do with 2 Samuel 8? Here's three things look at the cross references. Compare the key phrases, consider the context, and we start to see this text really come alive in a way. And we just appreciate to a fuller extent, you know what? God is keeping his promises here. No, this is not crazy devotional. You're not going to hear a lot of sermons from 2 Samuel 8. But God keeps his word. He's faithful. The very things that he promised to David, he's doing. Turn back to 2 Samuel 8. There's one more thing we've got to look at before we move on. Second Samuel 8, verse 15, we just have a description of David's reign. He reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. It's hard to come up with two better titles for a king, a ruler, but David here, he's just. He treats his people fairly. And in the following chapters, we'll briefly see these things played out. Look at chapter 10. I realize we're skipping chapter 9, but we'll come back to that very briefly. 10 verse 1, after this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to 
Hanan, their lord, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So pause there really quickly. David is doing this nice thing. This fellow king, his dad just died, and David is trying to console him. But Hanan, this uh, king of the Ammonites, is advised by his advisors, listen, David is just trying to send these guys over here to spy on you. He realizes that with the changing of the guard, there might be a discrepancy in power. You might be considered weak as a new king, and David's looking at how he can take advantage of you. So Hanan takes that advice, and in verse 4, he took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. You can't help but almost chuckle at this uh, reaction here. Obviously, beards were a big deal back in uh, ancient Israel. So to have your beard cut in half, I assume it was probably like half this way, would have been kind of embarrassing, right? You have your garments cut in the middle. I'll let you imagine what that would have looked like. These guys are embarrassed. And how does David respond? Verse 5, when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Uh, Again, it is a little silly to us that a beard would be that big of a deal, but David has compassion for his men. He treats them fairly. He says, listen, just stay in Jericho, regrow your dignity, if I can put it that way, and then come back to serving me. And in the meantime, David takes it out on his enemies. I mean, you can just, we won't read it, just just scan. You can see the numbers that are being thrown around here. 20,000, 12,000 at the end. um, Verse 18, we see that David killed uh, 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. I mean, David goes off on these people for their treatment of his servants. And we just see, you know what? If you are a, a servant under David and you are mistreated, David comes to your rescue. He stands up for his people. He's just. He's equitable. Things that are applaudable in a king. That's who David is. Verse, or chapter 9, rather, gives us perhaps the greatest uh, demonstration of this. Look at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, that sentence alone should make us just pause and consider, wow, this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Because here's David asking, inquiring about if there are any descendants of Saul who are still alive that he might show kindness to. And he does it for the sake of of Jonathan. And that just is a little reminder back in 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan had made a covenant with one another that they would look after each other's families. And here David is keeping that promise. Who seeks out their enemy to be kind to them? This is the story of Mephibosheth. Maybe you can see it at the top header there of chapter 9. Anyone remember anything in particular about Mephibosheth? What was like his defining characteristic? Hutch? Yeah. Uh, At the news of Saul and Jonathan's death, his uh, nurse dropped him as a kid, and he was crippled. You know, posing no real threat to David, but in many ways, here is an heir of Saul 
that probably has a more legitimate claim to the throne than David does. And you can imagine that, uh, you know, Mephibosheth is thinking, oh my, when he's summoned by David, I'm dead. You, you don't leave rivals to the throne alive. Mephibosheth is probably thinking, I'm toast. He found me, I'm a goner. And yet look at David's response in verse 4. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Ladobar. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Ladobar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Look at verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that the Lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And here David is just taking this guy who by all accounts should have been his enemy, yet he's Jonathan's son, and he says, hey, I'm going to treat you like a son of mine. You can eat at my table the rest of your life. Unbelievable. Here's my challenge to you. Find friends like Jonathan. Be a friend like Saul or like David. Be someone who keeps your word, who extends your hospitality outside of the sphere of your blood family members and says, you know what, even people who might be my enemies, come into my house. Be like a son to me. Sit at my table. I'll take care of you. These are the kind of people that we should be, and we see this attitude that is reiterated for us in the New Testament. Jesus, talking about our enemies, says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here's the point of what Jesus is saying. He says, you aren't being godly when you treat people well who also treat you well. That's not godly. Tax collectors do that. Gentiles do that. The worst in our society treat people well who treat us well. So there is nothing distinctly Christian about that kind of behavior. What is Christ-like? What is representing the Father well? Is when there are people who, as this verse says, persecute you, who are your enemies, that you love, that you are kind to, that you pray for. That is truly to be godly. Because as Jesus says, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun to shine on the wicked and on the righteous. So if you want to be like your heavenly father, do those things for your enemies. Now, granted, hopefully we don't have enemies that like, are actually trying to kill us. I, I hope that's not the case. 
But how about people we don't like all that much? People that maybe annoy us sometimes? People that maybe are enemies in a different sense? They always seem to have it out to get us. And the advice that we've seen in David, that we're seeing from Jesus, is you know what? Love those people. Pray for them. Be a blessing to them. That is truly to be like your Father. Let's pray. Lord, as we just examine a text of Scripture that is a little bit obscure, um, I pray that you would help us to just become better students of your Word, to consider even that things that just seem to, on the surface, possess details about battles and nations really are in Scripture to show us that you are a faithful God. You keep your promises. You keep your word. And Lord, help us to remember that even our enemies, the people that are the most unkind to us, are deserving of love and prayer. Because that is what you do. So help us truly to be your sons and to reflect our Father in us obeying that command. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.